Um, this morning, we will uh, be heading to um, a very short epistle, um, Philemon. If, we, if you would turn to Philemon, there's only one chapter, so don't look for many others. <laughs> um, our text will be coming from verses 1 through 7, but we will read the entire chapter just for this introduction as we get into this great epistle from the Apostle Paul. So Philemon will read uh, all 25 verses this morning. So just sort of meditate on these verses as we're reading through, and we will exegete the passage and glean from it what wisdom God has had, has for us. So Philemon uh, will read 1 through 25. It reads, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved, a fellow laborer, and to our beloved Aphia, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love because of the bowels or the hearts towards the saints, which are refreshed by thee, brother. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have, have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord? So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, Charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Jesus Christ, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Artharchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving us the grace to be able to rise up this morning being able to worship, raise our hands, congregate one to another with the brethren this morning. 
Thank you for every breath of life, every heartbeat, and every service of our body. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us the ability to hear and receive your word. Let the seed make root, let the root grow strong, and let us not be moved from your word, for in it we have salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help me to preach the word um, without anything lacking. Help the hearers to hear, and let us be doers of the word as well as those who speak it. In Jesus Christ's name do we pray. Amen. This epistle to Philemon has come to be one of my favorite letters in the Bible. The opening to this letter is so lovely and personal and really intelligently meticulous. There is so much to cover in just the beginning salutation that I don't want to bore you, but we will cover that today. Verses 1 through 7. I pray to do the text justice as it provides us with a level of wisdom in the areas of love, reconciliation, and forgiveness. This beginning really almost feels like an opening prayer, and the greeting to Philemon is carefully crafted by the Apostle Paul with specific intentions. The letter's intention is to point to Christ as the unifying center for those who labor together in the Christian faith. It points to forgiveness. It points to reconciliation of brothers called to the same faith and by the same Lord. Forgiveness and reconciliation go hand in hand, but often we leave one off without fulfilling the other. We want to forgive, but afterward we don't want to have anything to do with the person to show that we showed forgiveness to. Or we desire to be reconciled, but without going through the process of asking for forgiveness and going through the oftentimes tough course of reconciliation. In Christ, there is an imperative to fulfill both. That is the beauty of this epistle. These core theological positions aren't foreign, they aren't brand new, because in Christ we are forgiven. But also in Christ, we have been reconciled. We do not have a Savior who fulfilled one without the other. He didn't forgive us and then leave us on our own, or didn't reconcile us and didn't forgive us. He did both. He accomplished both. So Paul pleads with Philemon, this leader of a church, to do both as well. All through this epistle, this is what Paul is conveying to Philemon. This epistle to Philemon is the shortest epistle the apostle, the apostle Paul wrote, being only one chapter, 25 verses. The letter was written, no doubt, when Paul was in jail, as we see from the context of this setting, and who he actually addresses the letter to and who he's talking about within the letter. Well, now, we cannot say explicitly that the details were that were, 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 you know, uh, Paul's ministry in jail inspired this letter to be written. But what we do know is that there was an obvious conflict between Philemon and Onesimus. Onesimus had wronged Philemon in some way. Many speculate he stole something of value, probably money. Or Onesimus could have trespassed against Philemon in some other way. We do not know for sure. But the trespass was there. And to make matters worse, 
Philemon and Onesimus were not equals under the sociological or the societal structure of Roman rule. Onesimus was a slave who belonged to Philemon. And he was already indebted to Philemon in some way, obviously from the text. So not only was this a heavy crime between them spiritually, but the fate of Onesimus rested upon real-world laws of Rome. And if you know anything about the sociological or the societal structure of the Roman Empire, anyone who was a slave and committed any crime against their master could suffer very harsh punishments and consequences. To name a few, things like lashings by way of the whip, flogging similar to what they used on Jesus before his crucifixion. Sometimes they would even take an iron brand on a slave and burn it and burn their crime into their foreheads forever to be marked by their sin. Isn't that how our society does today? There is no path to redemption in society. You get banned from social media. You get cast out of company. You are extricated from everything that is social. But so is not the law of God. There is always redemption with Christ, as we recite every Sunday. But as a slave, under Roman rule and law, there was no path. And if the crime was too egregious, it could even be grounds for the death penalty. So this is the context in which Paul is writing this letter to Philemon. Paul understands the severity of Onesimus' offense against Philemon, but he also doesn't take the approach of punishment for Onesimus. He requests that Philemon show grace, and therefore he takes the approach of restoration. That's the gospel. That is the good news we have in Jesus Christ, but also in each other, for we are what? Little Christ, Christians. Brothers and sisters, join together under the kingdom where the walls of what? Hostility have been torn down already by Christ. So Paul puts Philemon's faith to the test, not intentionally for sport or amusement to see what Philemon would do, No, he lovingly, graciously, because he knows Philemon's faith, he knows the God that he serves, he knows Christ and the power of what Christ has already done. Paul understands that this incident could not just simply be swept under the rug. What type of example would Paul, the apostle, be setting for Timothy, who was with him, who was mentioned in the letter? One who he he also called his son, born out of his ministry. What type of example would he be setting for Onesimus, the one who committed the trespass? And for his beloved brother and fellow laborer, as he says in the text, a leader in the church who opened up his very household. Well, first of all, the Apostle Paul, if he had handled it in such a way, it would not be Christ-like. He scolds even the Corinthians for not handling matters correctly and proper judgment from within the church. In 1 Corinthians 6, 5, he says, I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between brothers. What kind of example would Paul be setting for Philemon? 
the one who had been wronged if he did not address this offense graciously, but directly and holistically. For Christ, if we are to be like him, is a mediator between God and man. Christ is also our high priest who stands in the gap and intercedes for us and for the saints daily. And he is our sacrifice. He is our substitute who places himself on the altar, receives God's wrath, which is our punishment, and therefore pays our debt, reconciling us to God. Paul essentially pleads and says, through the gospel, Onesimus is now saved. He is my son born out of ministry. And since we are all saved by the same Lord Philemon, we are brothers. Onesimus' sins have been forgiven by Christ. And are you greater than Christ, Philemon? Of course not. So forgive him. Oh, and Onesimus, he's an equal brother with you. So when he comes back to you, he should be no longer indebted to you but receive him as a family member and no longer treat him as a slave. That is incredible. A person who wronged you and also was at a lower status than you, a slave in your household who is indebted to you, now you have an apostle, a fellow brother, a laborer in Christ, asking for this person to be not only forgiven, but to be made a part of your family, your household, and the faith that you share. What person, what institution in the world would do that? None. In our world, many go to jail or imprisoned. And if um, many of you have been in trouble with the law like I have, you know you get out and at 3 o'clock in the morning you got to catch the bus with no money. <laughs> But that's what they do. But Paul is not requesting that. Paul is asking that the debt that Onesimus did against you, this brother is now saved, receive him as a family member. That's how Paul handles the conflict. He jumps right into the contention, handles it head on, compels Philemon that if it's too much, then what? Make me responsible. He even says in verse 17 through 19, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. Onesimus is not perpetrating me. This is me, Paul. I will repay it to say nothing of what you owe me. He says that if anything be owed, he'll repay it. I need you, Philemon, to forgive and be reconciled. That's leadership. That's a servant's mindset. That's the hard, practical plea to show the love of Christ. But just like always, this is not a new concept of allowing debts to be made free and setting a slave free from their master's rule. Hold your place. We'll get to the text in a minute in Philemon. But turn over to Exodus. 
Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21, beginning at verse 2. The concept of setting one free is not a new concept. Now, of course, I have to, for the sake of context and for the sake of our cultural uh, era that we live in, the area of slavery in the Bible is not the same area of slavery as we have in our American context or in an Arabic context or in a Slavic context in human history. In our context, the concepts, the, the concepts of slavery basically mean that it is chattel slavery. A person is not even considered to be human. They are subhuman. They are nothing but property. They are an animal. But in the context of scripture, slavery was simply putting yourself in debt to another person and working off that debt. This concept was sort of traveled over in terms of when you went to a restaurant and you forgot your wallet at home, or a classic response, I have no money to pay, you went in the back and you washed dishes. You worked off a debt. That was the concept of slavery in the Old Testament. But nevertheless, you worked off the debt. The debt was finalized. It was paid. It is where we get the concept of our credit structure, right? After seven years, you don't have to pay it anymore. The year of jubilee, until the bill collector calls you and you pay $10 and you got seven more years to pay. But <laughs> I'm just playing. Pay your debts. But look at Exodus 21 and verse 2 when it says, When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free, owing nothing. So when you have a slave, there is a concept of there is a year of release. Seven days you shall work. I'm sorry, excuse me, six days you shall work, and on the seventh you shall rest. I read it this morning. Six years you shall work your debt off, and if you owe anything after that six years, regardless, it should be made whole. It should, you should be set free from that debt. That was the year of Jubilee. Now scroll down to verse 7. This is very interesting. Look at verse 7. It says, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she is not, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be, her, her be redeemed. Not keep her in this union. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a what? A daughter. God, God's law, has respect for every person, no matter your social or your status in the community. God looks at his image of every image bearer, and you are equal in the eyesight of God. He didn't say she shall remain a slave and she shall be put out of the master's house, but no, he's going to treat her like a daughter even if he didn't fulfill his contract. Verse 10. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. 
And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out owing nothing without payment of money. Now, of course, man has abused this concept in the areas of child support and alimony. But the concept that God was distinguishing between the people of the world, the foreign nations outside of ancient Israel, was that everyone is made in the Imago Dei. No matter if you are a woman in the ancient world, the first century, no matter if you were a slave who was indebted for some reason, no matter if you are, 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 are a, a person like Onesimus who had actually wronged somebody, you are still worthy of the value that God places on his creation. You are to be treated equally as a human being. But in the father's house, you are more. You are a son and you are a daughter, and you are made free. So let's turn back to Philemon chapter 1 with that context in mind. Philemon, verse 1, says here, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer. Paul is very tactful with his language here. I believe Paul, in the very beginning of this epistle, is using the language of prisoner to set Philemon's mind up with a reference. And that reference is his condition, not only just in the physical jail, but the condition of being a prisoner to Jesus Christ. The condition of being a slave to Christ is a contrast from being a slave to what? Sin, which Philemon, Paul, Onesimus, and every Christian who is saved has experienced. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I am a slave to Christ. Love, peace, grace, forgiveness, reconciliation. I am a slave to all those things, but there is a joy in those things because there is no sin. Not only does this show humility, but Paul, the apostle, he is already writing with the intention to associate himself, Philemon, and Onesimus with one another. I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ, but so are you, Philemon. And now, in my ministry, so is Onesimus. Look at verse 2. And our beloved Aphia... And Archippus, our fellow soldier and the church in thy house. House church. Aphia is a part of the family as well. Archippus is a part of the family. And all those who's, who attends church at your house is a part of this family. Paul is lovingly reminding him of all those in whom are probably under his care and leadership in his household in the church as he hosted. He is reminding them that these individuals are not um, just individuals, but they are family, more than blood brothers, but they are all tied by something greater, and that greater thing, that greater person, is our faith in Jesus Christ. We are tied and bonded with Christ, and we need to allow Christ to be above all. Now think about this. 
Think about the context in which Philemon is living. He is probably a well-to-do person. He's having church inside of his house. So Philemon could very well respond and say, look, I'm doing all this for the church. I got the church in my house. These Roman people are always knocking at my door, trying to see what we're doing. I'm putting my family and my, and my well-being in danger. I've worked hard to get to my status. I have slaves. I have money. I have cattle. I have everything. And I'm risking it all for this faith in Jesus Christ. But Paul understands that Philemon knows of the grace that he has received. Because more than Philemon's property, his estate, his blood family, and everything he could possibly stand to lose, he gains more in Christ than all of that by having faith in Jesus. Look at verse 3. He says what? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that this letter out of the many Paul wrote is the only one that does not directly speak or for that matter even mention the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? I don't believe this is, this is simply an oversight by Paul or somehow he's leaving it out purposefully. I believe Paul is presenting the gospel message through the situational ties that he is about to address between Onesimus, Philemon, and himself. First, he makes the association of family, those who are co-laborers, fellow soldiers, fellow workers. Then he says, grace to you, peace from our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you may not see this as, as, as a big deal, but watch the next verse and you will see what Paul is doing. Verse four, he says, I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus Christ and toward all saints. The grace that you have received is from our God, but I thank my God for making mention of you or for praying for you always. We have the family, we have the personhood of Christ, we have the personal nature of Paul and Philemon's relationship, we have the buildup of all of us being prisoners in Christ and brothers in Christ. We are on equal footing. Do you see what Paul is doing? Paul is setting Philemon up with the mindset of nothing else matters. It doesn't matter that I'm in jail. It doesn't matter that you're well-to-do in Rome. It doesn't matter that Onesimus has sinned. What matters is our unity in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he says, I thank, I thank God for praying for you, hearing of thy love and faith which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. So first he associates the brothers himself and then the church together under the Father and Jesus Christ. Our being then he gets personal and says, I thank my God as I pray for you all the time. We are family and I trust that you and the saints at the house church are praying too. But I pray for you personally. Philemon had opened his house and it is implied that he is more than likely well off financially. He was able to house the church from his residence 
and he owned slaves. A person in his historical context doesn't get those resources out of thin air in Rome. So Paul states this, I'm praying for you always, and I'm glad to hear about your level of love and faith you have towards those who are in your house. In our day and age, this truth is often overlooked. So many today have a backwards idea of what the love of Christ truly looks like. Philemon is given accolades from Paul for helping the saints of the church, the insulated group. Modern evangelicals today have this skewed idea that loving the people of the world is therefore showing the love of Christ. And it can be. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not telling us or you that we should hate people who are not saved in the world. But what does God's word say? How, how, how people will know that we belong to him. Well, if we, what? Love one another. And the one another are the saints, those who are the church. John 13, 34, 35. A new commandment I give to you that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know, all men shall know that you are my disciples if you have love toward one another. Now, I don't want to discredit people's ministries and legitimate experiences around church scandals or church hurt or disenchantment due to bad leadership. But oftentimes, those people who criticize the church, they do it out of bitterness rather than seeking to actually restore and edify. I've said it many times. Our goal is not the same goal as Habitat for Humanity. Our goal in the church is not the same goal as FEMA. Our goal is not the same goal as, some, as any humanitarian or philanthropic movement. Our goal is to glorify God through loving one another in Jesus Christ who first loved us. Galatians 6.10, it says, As we have therefore opportunity, we will have opportunities to evangelize to the lost. We will have opportunities to sing and, 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 and have fellowships with the lost people of the world. But the family, as we have, our, have the, therefore opportunity, let us do good to all men. But what? Especially unto them who are the household of faith. In another portion of scripture, it says that if a man cannot provide for his own, then he is worse than an infidel. Paul is writing to Timothy saying that, look, if the people of the church are going lacking and you have outreaches where you're spending all your resources for lost people and not the people in the church, then you are worse than an unbeliever. How dwells the love of Christ in you if you don't give to your brother whom you see what? Daily. Our message, our importance, our emphasis is on the church. And Paul is pleading with Philemon and saying, Onesimus is now a part of that body. This matches with Old Testament and New Testament qualifications. It says when you are to count the daily offering, you are not to count the widow. But it qualifies the widow and says she must be a widow what? Indeed. If she has washed the saints' feet, if she has served God, 
if she has been faithful in her widowship. Not a normal widow, not an adulteress, not a person who is outside of the faith. We use those resources. Every time Paul says, I'm coming to you because we're going to go out with the brothers to evangelize. But the resources were first designated for the people in the house of God. We should definitely perform outreaches to the world. But our first priority should be relief efforts for, first and foremost, the saints in the church. We would not have our own household where our husband or our wife was hungry and we would go out and feed another man or a woman, right? We would not let our children go hungry in our own household and go to a Boys and Girls Club or a YMCA and go buy food and pass it out before we take care of our own. We should be that way in the church. Look at verse 6. He says, I love what I'm hearing, Philemon. I know your faith, Philemon. I know the saints who are there and how you have done much. Look at verse 6. That the communication or the sharing of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. Something to note here is that the apostle has no problem boasting about Philemon's work and service in the church. This is intentional. So even though Philemon was obviously well off and was doing a lot for the church, Paul doesn't once mention not being lifted up in pride like he, like he does in other epistles. He doesn't mention being careful of arrogance or even hints at anything remotely close to telling Philemon to check his ego. That's because him and Philemon, Paul understanding the unifying relationship in Jesus Christ, he knows that that is greater than anything that we could have, receive, or do for one another. We know that when a person is a true believer, a true follower of Christ, a person who holds to Scripture being the foundation of their life, you know that you can request, ask, or gracefully plead with that type of brother or sister for anything. They may grumble a little bit. They may get upset. I can't believe he asked me for $20. He don't he know what I would have. Oh, the, what, what does the word say? Give to them that ask. Oh, God, okay. All right. I can't believe he would ask me to forgive this guy who stole from me and then tells me to make him a family member? What does the word say? As a matter of fact, what did Christ do for you? He lifted you out of the Old Testament phrase, the muck and the mire. He saw you as a baby in your own excrement. He lifted you up. He cleaned you up. He put perfume on you. He adorned you, made you beautiful, and adopted you into his house. You were worthless by the world's standards. But Christ is greater. So Paul is just overjoyed with the communication, the sharing of the gospel message through the faith of Philemon, where he even says, I want you to fully comprehend every good thing that we, you, and I are doing in Christ. Look at verse 7. 
for we have great joy and consolation in thy love because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee. The heart, but in many translations it reads hearts of the saints. And that's good, right? That is actually correct. You know, the hearts of the, of the saints are refreshed, but it's much more than that. In the KJV, it uses this as bowels, the deep things. And the Greek word is splakna. It implies a deep emotion, an inward affection, a love, a heartfelt spiritual deepness of compassion. It is beyond just of an issue of the heart or some practical application. It is a spiritual deep love that Paul has and he's, and he's conveying here. Paul says, I have a great joy and confidence in your ability and works to love the saints of God. He's going somewhere. And I can see why the Christians of your house, Philemon, of the house church, speak so well of you and have a deep-rooted love for you there because I trust that you trust Jesus. That's the way it should be. We should have a deep rooted love for one another that goes beyond the boundaries of cultural, backgrounds, ethnicity, even blood relatives. When we are in Christ, we share something deeper than the temporal world. We are heirs to eternity with each other. Do you realize that every person saved here today will live in the kingdom of God forever with each other in complete grace and bliss and happiness in the family of God. When this temporal is gone, the eternal exists. This salutation to Philemon isn't to butter him up so he can ask him a tough thing about Onesimus. It is a genuine greeting of love to a fellow worker, a brother in Christ, and a saint that Paul and we will share in the house of the Lord one day. Onesimus is part of that beloved group as well. Christ is our New Testament jubilee. Christ was more than just a forgiver of sins for Onesimus and us. He was his jubilee. And he didn't have to wait seven years to get it. He believed the gospel message from Paul while in jail and trusted in the one who could reconcile him to his master in the flesh, Philemon. But most of all, Onesimus believed in the God who could reconcile him to himself. Back to God. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, And all things are of God, who has what? reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us a ministry of reconciliation. Not like of the world. When we have been reconciled to God, it is over. We don't have to keep committing ourselves to task after task and paying penance and coming back and saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and all these different things that we do to, re to regain our reconciliation. God says when you are reconciled, you are reconciled indeed. 
Verse 19 of 2 Corinthians 5, it says, To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. You can be comforted in knowing that it is not up to you for your own salvation. God has saved you, and when he saves you, he does not renege. He does not go back on his word. He does not take back your salvation. In this last verse, Paul says, because of the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. We'll get into it later. But what Paul is doing, and the reason why he doesn't go into detail about the resurrection and burial, I personally believe, is that Paul is putting himself in the place of Christ. Now, before you start throwing stones and tomatoes and everything else, I'm not blasphemous saying that Paul is Christ. But what I am saying is, is that Paul is extending himself in both areas. He is saying that Onesimus is now saved. Show him grace. I know, Philemon, you have been wrong, but I will, just like Moses, just like Elijah, just like every prophet, just like Christ that we are all in, I will stand in the gap as the one who is the substitute for Onesimus. And when he comes... We are joined together in brotherhood as a family, no longer slaves, because Christ is our jubilee. Christ is our unity. Christ is our Onesimus, Paul, Philemon, Akippus, Timothy, everyone's. He is our all in all. And we are one in Christ. That is a salutation. Now, can you imagine on that Sabbath morning when this letter was read and Onesimus approaches Philemon with the letter and Paul opens up with this salutation? We don't know what happened, but I, I guarantee you there was no shortage, shortage of, of, of tears that day. Imagine a slave. Imagine Onesimus' position. Living as a slave in debt to this person, had wronged this person, and hands him a letter sealed by Paul, maybe knowing or not knowing what's on it, and receiving the forgiveness of now a brother in Christ. Only in Jesus can you have that. That is the introduction to this book of Philemon. We'll get into more detail about substitutionary atonement and the resurrection and what this letter shows. But I want us to take with us today, we have unity in Christ. Everything else means nothing in light of what we share in Jesus Christ. Let us pray.